Sorry, good morning. I was having trouble figuring out if the mic was on. I want to definitely remember to pray for the team in Belize. It's been difficult. Last year they, um, they went to Utah, and they had, it was the first time they went any place above Central America. And they, um, they had to drive through blizzard conditions and freezing temperatures to get to their, their location when they arrived. And this year it was similar. It was bright sunshine. It was hard, warm air. Um, it's been difficult for them, so we want to definitely pray for them. Let's all pray for snow in Belize today, right? <laughs> Maybe some sub-zero temperatures. That would be great. Um, let's make a deal that all of us tell them it was 75 degrees and sunny every day they were gone, right? Nobody tell them anything different. If we all stick together, we can uh, make them regret it. Um, continue the series on the lies we believe, and I picked just be true to yourself. And what I mean by that is, the word true in this context doesn't necessarily mean correct. It means to be faithful, to be honest, to be genuine. And I want to focus, obviously this is a big thing in the world, but within the church this idea can be a big lie and be a big problem because it tends to make us think that we are the standard, that we have to be true to ourselves, and, and that the standards that we adhere to are ours. You know, we talk a lot about as Christians that we're just like everybody else. And that's true in a sense, we are. We're sinners just like everybody else. But we're also, and we, we're in agreement with the world on a lot of moral issues, right? We have general agreement on a lot of things. But we're also called to be different. And that's uncomfortable sometimes. In Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And see, what, the, what God is saying here is he's recognizing that, that bit of discomfort that comes with being separate. We're separate from the world. We're not like everyone else. That's uncomfortable. He's saying, don't worry, because even though you're separate from them, even though you're different from them, what you get in exchange is, I will welcome you. You get me. In, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you was holy, so you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So there is a standard. There is something outside of us. But how do we know, as Christians, what's okay, what's not okay? What entertainment is okay for us? What's not okay? What, what habits, what hobbies, what things that we do day to day, when they're not obviously black and white, how do we know where to draw the line? You know, as the culture moves, it becomes different. As things change, we have to figure out, is this change something new or something bad? Right? Where's the line drawn? Um, you may realize, may not, that this June will be 16 years since the release of the first iPhone. In 16 short years, how much has the world changed, right? How much have our lives changed? How many of you, if you don't have this out every five or ten minutes, start to shake a little bit, right? I'm going to put that there. That's so I can keep track of the time. Don't worry. That's a good thing for you, Um, right? But how much has the world changed? But we have to decide. We've had to raise two teenage boys through this time and try to figure out what's okay, what can they have, what can't they have, what's dangerous, and what's just new and kind of cool. You know, the fact that they can talk to their friends all day. When I said goodbye to my friends when I got off the bus, that was it. I didn't see them until the next day, right? They can talk and be with friends all the time. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Where's the line? It's difficult. As the culture moves, as things change, we have to figure that out. Um, about a month ago, maybe a little more, was the Grammys. And Sam Smith, who identifies as non-binary and gender queer, go find the definition for that and report back. Um, he uses the pronouns of they and them, which means reading an article about him is really disconcerting if you're familiar with the English language because you can't figure out who they are until you realize it means him. 
Uh, he and Kim Petras, who's a transgender woman, so it's a man who says that, that he's a woman, they performed a song called Unholy. He was dressed as Satan, and around him rotated dancers in various stages of, of dress, bowing down and worshiping him. And just a few minutes before he went out to perform, he tweeted something about it. And CBS, the home of Walter Cronkite, tweeted something back encouraging and then said these words, we are ready to worship. Right? See the slide of the culture. And a lot of people, because there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a song. It's no big deal. Now, most of us in the church would kind of get that. That's a problem. Two weeks ago in the Super Bowl, Rihanna performed at halftime. And we had it on in our house because we were watching the game. And um, <clears throat> I wasn't really paying that close attention to it. But I noticed, I thought I noticed a gesture. And so I started paying attention. And then I heard a lyric and I changed the channel. And I, I went back a few minutes later thinking it was over. I caught the tail end of it again. But it was interesting, the next day or a couple of days later, I saw something on, on social media from someone that I know. It's a younger person, and, and she put something up defending Rihanna from criticism from Christians. Now, I, I'm sad to say I hadn't seen much criticism from Christians, which is maybe a bad thing. But she was saying, there's nothing wrong with this. This is the pregnant woman just saying, what's the problem here? Now, she, she considers herself, I think, a Christian. And she said that. All right. Um, how many of you are old enough to remember in the, in the mid to late 70s, the show Three's Company? Okay, when it came out. When that came out, my mother would not let us watch it. My parents would not let us watch it. My mom was the enforcer, right? She was the stick. And you couldn't watch it. And we hated that. We, we were teenage boys. We wanted to watch that show. If you watch it now, you realize it, it is one of the dumbest things that you could ever watch. You can literally hear the brain cells dying while you watch. But that wasn't the point, was it? It wasn't the clever dialogue that was the point. Right, the point was the, the worldview that was pushing and the things that were funny. And today it would probably be considered too, too uh, not progressive enough, right? But we couldn't do it. My parents were deciding where does that boundary go? Culture was shifting. My dad told me the story. He grew up in a church in Manhattan called Glad Tidings Tabernacle. It was a very large church, very powerful church. As population migrated out to Long Island through the second half of the 20th century, a lot of the churches in Long Island can trace their roots back to this church. And he was a little boy in this church. This would be in the early 1940s. And there was a woman who had a beautiful ministry of music. She would sing. And it, she was going to sing on a particular Sunday. And she came to the church to sing. And she saw the pastor. And the pastor looked down and saw that she had open-toed shoes on. And he said, you can't come on the platform. You can't sing. And he wouldn't let her sing. Now, that's a, this is the church trying to figure out where those lines go. What's, what's a standard? What should be? What, where should the standards go? And we have to recognize those things kind of change over time. But the point is, as they move, we have to pay attention. We can't just glide with the culture and glide with the culture and go along with the tide. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court judge, his grandfather who raised him, said this, if you lie, you'll steal. If you steal, you'll cheat. And if you cheat, you'll kill. The slide into sin. Um, Ronald Reagan loved to tell stories about the Soviet Union. And he was telling, he told this story to show the decadence and what happens to people, normal people, when they live in a culture full of lies and distortions and untruths. He told the story of a man who worked every day in a factory, and every day when he left, he would bring a wheelbarrow full of stuff that he would steal. And every day he'd be caught, and they would take the stuff out, and he'd go home with his empty wheelbarrow. And day after day this went on. And years later, after he retired, 
One of his friends asked him, why did you keep doing this every day? You never got away with it. You got caught every single day. Why would you keep doing it? And the man said, what do you mean caught? I was stealing the wheelbarrows. Okay, the slide into sin, it becomes so... But he didn't even think twice about it. It was okay um, to do that. I'm shocked whenever I go back. I grew up in New York City. And New York City is like a third world country in terms of... It's very different even than here in terms of the regulation that's very oppressive sometimes in many things. And I, sh- I was shocked years later after going back and listening to people talk about the things they did to get around the system. And I was like... This is dishonest, but it becomes something you become immersed in, and it's easy to become a part of. Um, But how do we determine what are legitimate pleasures? C.S. Lewis says that God, he whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain, in his book, Problem of Pain. And he's focusing on the issue of pain and suffering, which we talk about a lot. But notice he's saying in there that in our pleasures, God's still speaking to us. They're good things. They're good gifts. They're not forbidden. We're not supposed to be dour, sad people. We're supposed to have fun. We're supposed to be entertained. We're supposed to do those things. That's good. But how do we know what's legitimate and not legitimate? Uh, there's two errors Christians fall into that we want to talk about. One is libertarianism. And this is the exaltation of liberty, my liberty, over charity for somebody else. It's the belief we have liberty in Christ. And we can therefore indulge in almost anything we like as long as it's not specifically prohibited by Scripture. Um, like most errors, this is probably, maybe even mostly true. Partly, at least, mo- maybe mostly true, right? God, Satan doesn't ever tempt us. Did you notice this with things that we know are wrong, right? He, there's a little truth mixed in. A little uh, in the in the King James, it says leaven, leavening the lump or yeast. There's just a little bit in there that makes it sound good, but it but isn't necessarily good. But it's partly true. Um, we do have salvation. We do have freedom in Christ. We're free from ritual observances. We're free from doing things to earn or to maintain our salvation. We don't have a list. We don't have to sacrifice. We don't have to do certain things. You're not required to put in so many hours of service at the church. We don't keep track of those things. You're not, now we're called to do them, but we're not monitored. It's not a, a specific thing that we have to do. We have a lot of freedom. But if it's taken too far, it misses the bigger point here and tends toward a dangerous myth. And that's the myth of individual rights, my rights within the body of Christ and within the church that I'm the standard, and I get to, I am true to myself. And if that's between me and God, God and I, I'm okay with it. Very often, God really didn't get a vote, did he? In Mark, I'm sorry, in Galatians, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Paul was talking or referring to many times the issue, a, a problem in the church was the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Not a problem we have today. But some felt it was, you shouldn't touch it, you shouldn't have anything to do with it. Some felt it was okay because you weren't worshiping the idol. And here, in talking about this issue, this is what Paul says For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. See, our pride and selfishness can lead us to put our rights above the rights of others or above the well-being of others. I can do this. It's okay for me. That's their problem. Prince Philip was talking one time to a rowdy group of students, and he said, shut up and sit down. And then he told them this. He goes, you can destroy freedom as much by abusing it as you can by taking it away. When we abuse our freedom, we actually destroy it. Um, The ending of that story of the woman in glad tidings goes like this. She could have said what many of us would say. I'm not coming to this church anymore. How dare you? 
That's a stupid rule. You're being legalistic. You shouldn't do that. But that's not what she did. She wanted to minister so badly. It was so important to her that she ministered for the Lord that she went and found someone else who wore her size and traded shoes. And she came back and sang. Because she put someone else's rights and obedience to the Lord before she put her own rights. The second error besides libertarianism is legalism. This is the one we're all familiar with, right? We talk about it all the time. And I call this the exaltation of laws over law. And let me explain what I mean. Now, this isn't just the grumpy old Christian, the church lady from Saturday Night Live, who goes around telling people what they can't do, what they should wear, what they shouldn't wear, and all that. Those people do exist. You can probably think of a couple that you've known in your life, right? There are people like that, but that's actually mostly a character. They're not very common. The fact that you remember a couple of them tells you the reason they stand out is because they're not common, right? They're there, and they do a lot of damage. That's a problem. But the bigger danger is that this takes our natural inclination that we have to want to make a list of rules, to codify the rules, and to put a fence around what's right and wrong. The problem is when we do that, we're hypocrites. When we draw that list of what's right and wrong, and we're making a circle, and here's something we do over here, all of a sudden the circle goes around and picks that thing up, right? I call it target drawing. The arrow gets shot, it lands in the wall, we run over and draw a target around the arrow and say, see, it's fine. I hit it. It's okay. I'm in the target. Um, F.W. Borum said this. He says, we compound the sins we are inclined to by forbidding those we have no mind to. Aren't we good at seeing what someone else is doing that they shouldn't do that we're not tempted to? We're very good at that. Um, Someone else said, isn't it true that the drunkard will often boast of his charity? The immoral man is thankful that he's not a thief, and the profane swearer flatters himself that he never lies. This was the era of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Jesus tells them, you have all these rules that you made, all these lists of things that you've done, all these traditions, but you've forgotten the greater points of the law. You should have kept these things while not forgetting the former, but you didn't. And here's what he says to them. He goes, by doing this, you have made void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. How would you like to have Christ tell you, Jesus tell you, you've made void the word of God by what you've done? It's not fun. Rules don't work. If you raise children, never mind children, girls are perfect. If you raise boys, okay? Sorry, guys. If you raise boys, and I have two sons, but I also have probably a dozen nephews, and um, I've helped, my wife's worked in children's church, three to five-year-olds for 30 years. Boys, and I say this all the time, boys are like Labradors, okay? I know they're doing something stupid. I just don't know what it is right now. Right, And here's something else. I can't give them a list of rules because their power to think of new and even dumber and even stupider things to do far exceeds my ability to codify the law. I can't do it. It's impossible. My dad passed away a little less than a year and a half ago, and at his funeral and talking about him, I said, you know, my dad gave great advice. The one that I remember the most was, Russ, don't be stupid. Right? And what it, what it lacked in specificity, it made up for in clarity. Right? But he was right, and he mostly said it either exasperated or or joking with me. But what he was saying was, you know what's right. This isn't a problem of you not being sure what to do or not knowing what to do. This is a problem of you not doing what you already know. That's what he meant by don't be stupid. My dad didn't coddle me very much, as you can tell. (laughs) Right? Don't be stupid. But this is a much harder standard than having a list of rules. It's easy to have a list, because then you can just check it off, right? You can follow these things. It's much harder to have a general list. It's kind of like this. Guys, for your wives, there's four big days, right? There's her birthday, 
there's Valentine's Day, there's your anniversary, and then there's Christmas. And if your wife is especially diabolical, she's thrown in a few other anniversaries of the day you met or whatever to make it really hard for you, okay? Now, it comes time to get a gift for one of these things. Now, the ideal thing is if she will go buy what she wants, bring it home, and wrap it for you, and then give it to herself and say, right, you can't screw up. I actually achieved that, not this Christmas, but the last one. Um, Amy did that, which was, which was great. It was probably the only time she got a gift she really wanted. Um, but the next thing is when she says, here, go to this store, buy this in this size or this color or whatever it is, and get it. We can do that, right, guys? We can, okay, 75% of the time we can do that. We're going to still screw it up once in a while. Oh, that's a six? I thought it was a nine. Whatever. We're going to do something wrong, right? But most of the time we can do that. But what's the worst thing she can say? You just do what you think is right. You get something that you just think is me, right? I can see different guys, their face, the color just drained from their face. The very thought of this sends shivers down our spine, right? Because we know that's a horrible standard. We don't want to have to think that hard. It's not our... I refer you to my earlier comment about Labradors. We're just older ones, okay? We're no better, all right? But there's a new law in Christ. In Mark... And Jesus says, it says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people coming into the temple and putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make about a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, a piece of what they had, maybe a very small piece of what they had. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. God doesn't ask for a piece of us. He asks for all of us. You want to measure the strength of your Christian walk? Look at where you spend your time and where you spend your money. And that's it. That'll tell you. In Galatians, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. What does it mean to live by the spirit? Well, it means to live, to remain in communion with him, in constant communion with him, and to make decisions in the context of his presence. It, see, it isn't so much, what would Jesus do? That's very popular, you can get a bracelet, it's great. But you're not Jesus, and neither am I. That's pretty daunting. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus did a lot of things I can't, I wouldn't do, right? Or I don't think I could do. But what it really means is what would I do if, as I've come to every single decision about go this way or this way if I remembered that Jesus was right here with me, right at my side. I'm with him all the time. Uh, the best example I can think of this is my grandmother. My grandmother, my grandfather died when I was about a year old. And my grandmother moved with us and lived with us for 30 years till she passed away. And she was one of the most meek, one of the most meek, mild, sweet woman or person I've ever met. There was nothing impressive about my grandmother. She didn't know how to drive. My dad had a teacher, was teaching her, it was his mother-in-law, how to write a check. And she told me later that she was in tears because she was sure she would accidentally give all her money away. She'd never driven, like I said, she'd never driven a car. Took the bus all over and subway all over New York City to get around. But she lived with us. And from a little boy, I can remember her walking around the house all day, I would hear under her breath, thank you, Jesus, precious Jesus, in her thick Norwegian accent, thank you, Jesus, precious Jesus. 
She was continually, the scripture, pray without ceasing. That was my grandmother. And I never, for, for all the things that she, she made no impression on the world around her. No one knew when she passed away. No one knew she'd ever existed except those who were around her and saw this, that sweet spirit. And I'm challenged every day because I'm not like that. But she never forgot that he was right there with her. She lived her life in the context of his presence. Next, I want to talk about some standards of Christian conduct that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul is talking to the Corinthians specifically about this problem of meat offered to idols okay, and how they should react to their brothers and sisters. Some people are offended by it and convicted, and some aren't. And he gives these, these different verses. We're going to go through a bunch of verses. In chapter 6, he goes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And chapter 8, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make him stumble. Paul didn't think there was anything wrong with it, but he says, I won't ever eat meat if it will make him stumble. And then in chapter 10, he goes, All things are lawful, but he repeats, But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So what are the standards we find here? First, is it beneficial to you? Does it build you up? Right? Not why can't I, why should you? Right? Will it master you? Will it force you to take a picture of your meal and post it before you eat anything? Do you, can you not lay your head on the pillow at night until you've liked every comment by every person on earth? Will it master you? Will you spend hours? I shouldn't keep going on social media, should I? Right? Will it master you? There's a line. Right? And finally, does it bring glory to God? He wraps it up in, in chapter 10, verse 31. He goes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, for God's glory. There are three principles of pleasure I want to talk about. Okay? The first one is the gluttony test. Any pleasure, no matter how good, if not kept in balance, will distort reality and destroy appetite. Right? In Proverbs it says, if, I've, if you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. Okay? Very clear. Right? And, and everyone love that scripture? Anyone that's your favorite verse? Right? Very clear. Right? If you have too much of it, what's good becomes not good. Right? Things have to stay in their, in their lane, so to speak. They have to stay in the proper, uh, proper balance. You have to keep things that way. For example, I like to play golf. I don't like it as much as I used to because I don't get to play as much, and I'm, I'm not a, so my game has naturally deteriorated. I get what I deserve when I go out once a year, right? I was like, okay, I, I think I know what this. And you always play well in the last hole to make it, it tricks you into coming back, right, to suffer for another 18 holes. But I used to play a little more. But if I play golf six or seven times a week and I'm not with my family, that good thing has become a bad thing, and it's sin to me. I love to hold hands with my wife. We've been married for 70 or 80 years, I forget. I, I often say even murderers get parole. <laughs> um, in the first service, I'm going to be in trouble now. And um, it's okay, though, because once you're a certain amount into the doghouse, it just doesn't matter anymore. Um, like, what can you do to the person on death row? Right? <laughs> but I love doing that. T- to this day, there's something comforting about being with the one you love and feeling that touch. In the, in the midst of everything going on around you and all the stuff you're doing, right? There's something nice about that, and I still enjoy it. And even though we're, you know, approaching 100 years old, we still enjoy, we still enjoy doing that. Okay, but I never hold her hand while I'm playing golf. Right? I never hold her hand while she's trying to do something and cook, or work, or I'm trying to work. We don't. It has its right time, its right place. 
right? There's a time for everything. The second test is the external test, all right? Any pleasure that jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit or illegitimate pleasure. In Genesis, we have the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It says, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph recognizes that this would violate Potiphar's sacred right. Now, he could say, I'd be sinning against Potiphar, and he'd be right, right? He'd be betraying Potiphar, and he knows that. He'd also be sinning against Potiphar's wife. Even though she gave permission, she doesn't belong to him. He's not entitled to her, and he'd be violating her. But what he recognizes is that, that these sins are actually primarily sins against God and against his law. And that's the primary offense. And he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We deceive ourselves and we think that pursuing certain things only hurts us and no one else because nobody else knows. And guys, I'm talking straight to us today. It isn't just pornography. It's the availability of images and, and, and all kinds of things that come at us so easily today. I, I tell my boys, I, I wouldn't want to be you at your age. Right? It wasn't nearly as accessible as it is. But your wife, your spouse, and women, this goes to you, to your spouse, is entitled to you, to all of you. There's no compromise. You have nothing private. You don't have a right to yourself that belongs to your spouse. Right? And it isn't just in the area of pornography or sex. It's also in the area of your life, your devotion, and what you do. Your spouse is entitled to all of you. That's the pledge you made. And Joseph recognized, and when you violate that, even if you have someone's permission, even if you think it's only you and no one else knows, if you do that, you commit great sin, in Joseph's word, you great wickedness, and you sin against God. David was at Adullam. In 2 Samuel, it tells us this. It's going through the list of the mighty men, the great men and warriors and friends of David that surrounded him during his time, both before and after he became king. And it says, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. We think this is probably before David became king, when he was still actually fleeing from Saul, but also fighting the Philistines whenever he had a chance. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And therefore he would not drink it. So here's the story, right? David, speaking of water, David wishes out loud, for a drink of this. Remember, David was from Bethlehem, so he knew this well. He goes, boy, I wish I could have a drink from that well. And these three men, David's men loved him. His inner circle clearly knew that he'd been promised the kingdom and that he was going to be king one day. But they loved him. And three of them said, I know what we'll do. We'll go get him a drink. They loved him so They couldn't wait to do this for him. And they went through, and it doesn't say they snuck through the camp. It says they broke through. So it's very likely that there was some violence involved. 
and they risked their lives and they got the water. And you can almost hear him coming back. I can't wait till he sees this. He's going to be so happy. This is going to be so great. And they give him the water and he takes it. And you can see David take it and, be, and raise it to his lips, just about to drink it. And he stops. And he goes, I can't do it. And he takes it and he pours it out on the ground. And they go, what is he doing? Does he know what we did for that? He's wasting it. But that's not what he was doing. What David was saying was, I'm not worthy of this. I don't have a right to this. This belongs to someone greater than me. The only one worthy of this is God. And when he pours it out, it says before the Lord, that means something. It's a drink offering. All through the law, it talks about drink offerings. Usually they would be used with wine, and you pour it out liberally. David took this water, and he poured it out before the Lord and says, I can't have that. It's not mine. It belongs to somebody else, and only God is worthy of it. Now imagine later on in his life when David walks out in the cool of the evening on the roof of his palace, and the palace is up at the top of the hill in Jerusalem, and he looks down and sees on a, on a roof somewhat below him a woman bathing. What if he had applied that principle then instead of sending for Bathsheba? How would the kingdom of Israel have been different? How would David's life have been different? Look at what happened. David's oldest son raped one of his, his, his son's stepsisters. The brother of that stepsister then murdered the oldest son. The second son, we believe, died at some point. We don't hear from him. The third son has murdered the first son. The third son then leads a rebellion against David, which fails, and he's killed along with many other people. Right? The fourth son, before David even dies, tries to take over the throne. And, and David has to quickly move to make Solomon king. And then Solomon has to kill his brother because he tries to make a claim, or the, he fears that he's trying to make a claim on the throne later. And Nathan had told David, after when he came to him and confronted him with the shin with Bathsheba, he said, violence will not leave your household. David's grandson lost the kingdom. It was split and never, never was reunited until it was destroyed, until both different parts were destroyed. Right? Imagine how that would have been different had David just followed this principle later on. He knew it. He just didn't do it. The third test is the internal test. Anything that refreshes you without distracting you from or diminishing your final goal is a legitimate pleasure. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in a dated life. We forget. We're not good at thinking long term, are we? Right? We, we typically think about the thing that's right in front of us. We think the word is tactically instead of strategically. Right? As you get to a certain point in age, you get a little older, you start to think a little bit right? more about those things because you realize, I don't have 50 years left. I don't have 40 years or 30 years left. That time's getting short, and you begin to think about those things. We're not good at thinking about them. Right? In Philippians, Paul tells us about the final goal, what it is and what it should be. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's the goal? That I may know him. That I may identify with him. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. She herself was the youngest of 25. 
Her two favorite or famous sons that you probably heard of are John and Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer. John Wesley was called the Sermon on the Mount because he rode on horseback. It's estimated he gave over 20,000 sermons during his life. You can do some math later and figure out how much that was. When he was, I believe, 85, he was very angry with his doctors because they would not let him preach more than 14 times a week. Okay? But when he was a young man, he asked his mother, Susanna, for a definition of sin, and here's what she said. If anything weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things, in short, if anything increases the authority and power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. In closing, there's two, two basic things. If you remember anything else, remember these two things. The first one is guard your heart. Guard your conscience. Many times we find ourselves looking at things and saying, why can't I do that? I can, here's why I can do it. It's okay to do it. We think of sin as being kind of a drop-off, but it's not. We try and get right up to the edge, right? Right up. I'm okay now. It's fine. As long as I don't take that, maybe I can do this. Look, he's down three steps. It's okay. But we want to get right to the edge. That's not how sin works. It's a slope. And by the time you get near what you think is the edge, you're actually already knee-deep in the garbage and the junk and the mud and the mire. It's already infiltrated. It's in your mind. It's kind of like being in the Niagara River in a rowboat. You might think you're safe because you're 200 yards from the edge. But if you've been on the Canadian side especially, you can get right by the water and you've seen that water. If you're 200 yards from the edge in a rowboat, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. You cannot row out of that. You're going to go over the edge. Right? We think of sin that way. And we think we're safe. In James, James describes this process, right? Because for each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is a process as it works our way into our thinking, it works our way into our conscience, or where slowly we begin to move through this process and uh, moving towards death. There's a story about a girl who wanted to go out on a date with this young man from town, and he was a man of bad character. And her father was saying, please don't go, don't go, don't go. And she was saying, no, Dad, it's going to be fine. It's, it's just one date. It's not a big deal. It's nothing. And the day she was supposed to go, she went up and got dressed, and she came down, and her father was sitting there, and he said, would you please bring me a coal from the fireplace? And she said, I can't. He goes, no, don't worry. It's not hot. There hasn't been a fire all day. It's cold. He goes, well, Dad, it won't. She goes, well, he said, it won't burn you. He goes, well, I know it won't burn me, but it'll stain he looked at her and said, that's what I've been trying to tell you. See, we can avoid the burn sometimes, but can we avoid the stain of sin? Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons, and it says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. This doesn't sound like that big a deal, but if you read through the Old Testament, and sometimes as I go through, I try to read through the Bible. Well, I do. I read the Bible every year, and as I read through these portions, it's easy to skip through them. I don't really care what kind of hide they use to make the. Why am I reading this? Well, the loops and this and that. All the detailed instructions for how to do everything. Why is that important? The lesson is this matters because it's me. These standards matter. It does matter, right? It's not following your own heart. Do do you know? Just be true to yourself. This matters, and they did something. Not outside the rule, he said, when you come to my presence, this is how you do it. And they did it their own way. You might say they, they just were true to themselves. And, they were, and God struck them dead. Right? 
And now he's talking to Aaron. This is the only time that we have recorded that God spoke directly to Aaron and not just to him and Moses or to Moses who relayed to Aaron. And he's talking about the role of the priesthood, and he says this, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to make a difference between the two, and you don't touch what's unclean. You stay away from it. Peter calls us, this isn't just for the priests in the Old Testament, Peter calls us a royal priesthood. Can we take that standard more, more lightly and not apply it to ourselves? Steve Green wrote a great song, I don't know how many years ago, a number of years ago, called Guard Your Heart. It says, what appears to be a harmless glance can turn to romance, and homes are divided. Feelings that should never have been awaken within, tearing the heart in two. Listen, I beg of you, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure. Don't give it away. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. As a payment for pleasure, it's a high price to pay. The human heart is easily swayed and often betrayed by the hand, at the hand of emotion. You dare not leave the outcome to chance. You must choose in advance or live with the agony, such needless tragedy. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't trade it for treasure. Don't give it away. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. As a payment for pleasure, it's a high price to pay. For a soul that remains sincere, with a conscience clear, guard your heart. The second thing is guard your heart and then worship. We need to cultivate this view that all of our life, every moment, not just the 15 or 20 minutes that we sing songs on Sunday morning, right? all of our life is an act of worship, or it isn't, to God. Everything we do. We said be early, to live by, to, by the Spirit, to walk with Him, is to live in communion with Him and worship with Him all the time in the context of His constant presence with us. William Temple gave this definition of worship. He said, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind by His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, and submission of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we're capable. Let's look what he says here. Let's break it down as we look at, do we, follow, do we, should we be true to ourselves? Should we follow our own heart? It's the quickening of conscience. Quickening here doesn't mean make faster. It means to make it alive. Our consciences were dead and he made them alive. You know, we forget sometimes Jesus didn't come to make bad people better people or bad people good people. He came to make dead people live. That's why he came. It quickens our conscience by his holiness. It brings life to our dead conscience. Not ours, not our friends, not the standards around us, but his. It's the nourishing of our mind, the feeding of our mind by his truth, not our feelings or not what those around us say. It's the purifying of imagination by his beauty, not by the temptations dangling in front of you, not by the things that the world thinks are attractive, but what God says is, pretty, is beautiful, what God puts in front of us. We purify our imagination. It's the opening of our heart to his love. We're to love the way that he loved. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He gave himself for us. And finally, it's submission of will to his purpose. Paul says, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And we think we're free when we follow our heart, when we just are true to ourselves. But in fact, we're never more free than when we're in submission to him. 
So guard your hearts, guard your conscience, protect it. Build that wall in advance. Don't wait till you're in the middle of temptation. So Daniel says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not sin. He thought about it beforehand. So guard your heart and worship all of your life. Every moment is an act of worship. Let's close in prayer before we sing. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that though we're unworthy, you loved us enough to save us, to deliver us. Lord, help us to remember that you're always with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. That's not just important in times of trial, Lord, but help us to remember that you're there with us in every decision with everything we do. Lord, fill our hearts with love for you. Help us, Lord, by your spirit. Sanctify us. I pray that you would be with us this week as we go. Lord, show us ways that we can worship you in everything that we do. And I pray that you challenge us to pray and think in advance of those things, those temptations we know that are constantly besetting us and plan for them and think about them ahead and and work with you and talk to you, Lord, about those temptations and prepare in advance to fight them. We praise you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name.